So that's what I'm saying. The text is like an object. It's gonna change perspective based on where you're standing. I don't know. Hello? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? I missed you, baby sweet. It was a day, hmm? It was a day. Please tell me you're seeing this too. From Seattle, we are drinking the movies. I'm Taylor Baker. And I'm Michael Clausen. Oh, hey, Michael. Fancy seeing you this year. Fancy seeing you. We are continuing to talk about our favorite films of 2020. Ready to dive back in for part two? I'm stoked to get back in it. This is one of, I think, our favorite categories because it's not only a positive category, it's just a joyous category. We're talking about the future and how bright it is and and all that good stuff. So, uh, yeah, I'm thrilled. Let's talk about which stars were born in the year 2020. All right. Uh, You want to go first? I think I kicked off our last episode, so why don't you go first this time? I can go first. Uh, My submission here for uh, one of my folks, why don't we take turns going back and forth with Stars Born? Okay. Uh, My first one here is going to be Matilda DeAngelis, and this is a supporting actress in a uh, limited series on HBO, The Undoings. It stars Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant, and Noah Jupe plays the role of the son as well. Mm. She is um, essentially the femme fatale that the film series ends up being about. It's, an, it's definitely that limited series feeling where it has a film propulsiveness. Um, she's also in Rose Island, which is a foreign film, mm. and uh, I believe it's an Italian foreign film, uh, about trying to engineer an island off of the coast of Italy um, and make something just your own where you don't have to follow other people's rules. She has a a small supporting role there, but she, she kind of strikes me as Ana de Armas um, from Blade Runner fame where it's, she's not just strikingly beautiful. She is incredibly talented. She can convey and magnetize you with a look as long as there's a good cinematographer and without her ability to make you, feel things just by holding a stare or looking cold or um, smiling viciously with complete silence she can change the way that you view something Um, Mm. this is just one of those kind of Norma Jean Baker a la Marilyn Monroe type actresses where I just think that with the right projects she has the magnetism like Anna Darmus to really become one of the great up-and-coming actresses of this time. Love it. Very cool. And who is your selection for Stars Born? My first one is Maria Bakalova from Borat 2, or Borat Subsequent Movie Film, as I think it was officially called, a movie I liked. Didn't love it, but I enjoyed it well enough. I've been surprised, actually, to see just like how many lists I've actually seen Borat pop up on. I think it was very high on... New York Times list among some other ones, but I just cannot like find a single review that doesn't delight in Maria Bakalova's performance here. I think because of the unique kind of format of the Borat movies, the Borat project, it's impossible to know how a performer in one of these movies might, how their talents might translate to a dramatic role. So I have no idea what she might go on to do, but um, it seems like she's already signed with an agency. She's just been um the praise has just been heaped on her i've been really just kind of surprised um not surprised because i think she's great but it just seems like the 
praise has been widespread for uh, her comedic turn in uh, Borat 2. Um, so I am eager to see if she has more uh, comedic roles in her future for Maria Bakalova in I Borat 2. Quite a bit as well. All right, my final selection here for Star is Born, a category that I have many more people than just these two for. I'm selecting Gaspar and Tio. I've found a way to bring up the um, director and his directorial debut effort, Nobody Knows I'm Here. Uh, this is a film that is about a child, a fallen child star who now lives in isolation and is insecure and self-loathing about his uh, body type. He's overweight and has an incredible voice. This is a film kind of about self-acceptance, but also about grappling with the past and um, those cultural narrative things where the way something's reported might not actually be the events that actually happened. Mm. Who would have thought? Um, so this is, um, if you have the ability to, this is a film that is on Netflix. It is one of the most beautifully shot films of the year. It's a very passive thing. It's about a man who is coming to terms with who he is. I don't want to elaborate more on that as well as his past, trying to open up the people while being presented with reasons to stay closed off so that you're not emotionally hurt. Um, it's not only got an incredible performance, it has really striking direction. The compositions are luxurious, but also plain. It's just a depiction of the gorgeousness of nature. It's a depiction of a lake and a motorboat and the ripples and men working in ugly work type raincoats, but it looks beautiful. It has, I think, the most memorable images. If you were to print them, it, it like Vitalina Varela, you'd mm. want to hang these on your walls. Mm. Um, I haven't heard nearly enough about this. I believe it's one of the least popular high-reviewed films on Letterboxd this year. Mm. And anyone can watch it for free on Netflix if you have a subscription. So that is my selection for A Star is Born, and I can't wait to see what he does next. Cool, cool, cool. What is your final selection for A Star is Born, Michael? My other rising star is a filmmaker. Her name is Sophie Ramvari. She has primarily to date made shorts, if I am not mistaken. Uh, her most recent work that has um, got her quite a bit of claim over the past year or so is called Still Processing, and it's a short in which she's sort of um, excavating and confronting um, some tragic family history of her own, very intimate um, and and personal uh, short. Um, and I just routinely see her name cropping up as year end lists are forming. And it's a short I really enjoyed and um, would highly encourage folks to just check out her Vimeo page where I think she has a good number of her previous works available. I don't think still processing is on there just yet. Um, but I know she's working on her first feature, which I will be very excited to see. So Sophie Ramvari, keep your eye out for her. Great. Uh, we will also try to make sure that we get a link to that Vimeo on the podcast, at least on uh, Android platforms, so that you can easily find her page. All right, Michael, why don't we get to our number five feature films of 2020? All right. 
what is your number five film? My number five film I alluded to earlier. Où est le dossier secret sur Dreyfus Désormais, je m'en chargerai personnellement. On intercepte mon courrier. Je suis constamment suivi. Peux-tu prouver tout cela Je voudrais éviter un scandale. C'est déjà un scandale. Tu devrais quitter Paris quelque temps. Et toi J'ai l'honneur de vous présenter, Monsieur Émile Zola. Quelqu'un doit exposer toute l'histoire. En tant qu'officier d'actif, je ne peux rien écrire là-dessus. Vous, non it is Jacques Hughes, or An Officer and a Spy, directed by the perpetually problematic Roman Polanski, starring Louis Garrel, opposite of Jean Dujardin. Those are the two main players in this film. There are a handful of others that are giving great performances. I alluded earlier to um, kind of likening it to Peterloo, in which it's this holistically, um, totally absorbed with being a period piece type of a film. You never think that you're not where you are. All customs, culture, small, the smallest detail, the biggest facade, all feels of that point in time. And um, the story is essentially about a man who was convicted of treason for a crime that he did not commit. And we follow Louis Garrel, who is that man who was convicted of treason wrongfully. And um, this is a film that was originally made a uh, hundred years previously to this film. 1919, I believe, was when it was originally made. And it is based on a uh, book and a real life event about what happened in France in which a man, due to who he is racially, was condemned to treason wrongfully um obviously there's a little bit of double speak there perhaps with polanski's own um shortcomings as a human uh but i think that when you just look at the film by itself this is undoubtedly one of the richest tapestries with some of the most committed performances particularly watching louis garrel in jail over years um the makeup effects to make it actually look like he's aging suffering coated in sweat uh, burnt, lashed, cut, bruised, broken, but unwilling to be anything but innocent is very, very compelling. Um, so I would recommend this film whenever it becomes available. That is Jacques or the English title is An Officer and a Spy. Kind of seems like one that could end up on a movie or, you know, one of the smaller services mm-hmm. at some point. seems like if it makes its way stateside, that's probably how it would do it yeah yeah perhaps i think um a rainy day in new york ended up going to hulu or something like that so it could also go that route something smaller like a hulu or a movie yeah for sure cool all right michael what is your number five on the year my number five is sean durkin's the nest i think we need to move What are you talking about? I thought things were great. Mm-mm. Things are dried up here. This will be our fourth move in ten, ten years. Backwards. But money's fine, right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, Sean Dorkin's last film was Martha Marcy May Marlene, which came out, I think, in like the early 2010s. This has I think been it was a Thank you for that. Uh, long-awaited follow-up. Uh, this stars Kiri Kuhn and Jude Law. It's set in the 
80s. They are a married couple with children who, at the start of the film, move from New York to England. Um, Jude Law's character is a commodities trader or broker. Uh, his wife, Carrie Coons, um, uh, is primarily a horse trainer slash horse rider. Um, and they make their way to England because Jude Law's character sees that uh, business opportunities have supposedly dried up stateside. He, he sees better business prospects in um, England. And this becomes sort of a slow burn uh, psychological thriller of sorts about kind of um, – the unique kind of greed and hunger for wealth and excess that manifested in the 80s as deregulation and privatization really took off. Um, I think it's a really interesting movie to me for how it approaches some 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 admittedly familiar themes about um, greed and the, the damage that can have on a marriage or a family through just some really unusual genre conventions. This plays like a gothic thriller more so than just like a um, family drama to me. I think there are some really kind of fun red herrings in this movie that make you think it might um, go off into supernatural territory, which is just total, total, totally unusual, if you ask me, um, in terms of what this movie's ultimately about. And I think the performances by Jude Law and Carrie Coon are just a blast. I think they're both super terrific. Um, and it is available for... Rental, The Nest, by Sean Durkin. It is an interesting film. All right, Michael, let's get on to our top three OSTs, or compositions, of score in a film, starting with your number three. All right, my number three score slash soundtrack of the year is in Martin Eden. Ho riflettuto molto su me stesso e ho sentito come uno spirito creatore che mi divampava dentro, che mi incitava a fare di me uno degli orecchi attraverso cui il mondo sente, uno degli occhi attraverso cui il mondo vede. I already talked about that was my number 10 or tied for my number 10 uh the score was by marco messina and sasha ricci and as i kind of talked about a big aspect of this movie is that it's not set in a particular decade in the 20th century it's always a little ambiguous when when exactly we're watching this story unfold and i think beyond just kind of period signifiers through costumes and um, locations and that kind of thing. The score has a lot to do with it. The score is this kind of dreamy electronica, but then on the soundtrack, there's also this kind of um, like vintage t- Italian pop um, that's always just kind of unmooring you in time, which I thought was super, not just aesthetically pleasing on its own, but just right in line with how this movie's trying to keep you kind of adrift within this whole century. Um, really cool score. Uh, that's in Martin Eden, um, which is sort of reminiscent of transit christian petzold's transit and it's use of time it was like that um out of time definitely definitely score has a lot to do with it um what's your number three my number three is a film with much a buzz from a24 called minari <laughs> Sogsa, Gidenbach, 
qualities to the film, but I think that most notably for me walking away from it is the beautiful soundscape that it has, making use of the sounds that we would assume we would hear in nature, from insects to a creek's babble, along with these melodic swells and undercurrents. Uh, if you've seen the trailer, you know there is a certain climactic event involving um, something that is hot. Uh, I can only say that these score their swells in a, a way that is very memorable. Um, but before that, there's many slower, small scenes that have equal importance as this family reckons with who they are and what they're going to be to each other. And that melody constantly is um, something that I think will translate into the future as being one of the great scores of this year. That's definitely one of my blind spots, Minari. I wish I could have caught that before uh, making the list. It's on quite a few of them. It is. Well-deservedly. And just uh, to cap, it was composed by Emil Masseri, and I believe it's um, still very early in his career. I think he's only done a few other films. Um, All right. What is your number two, Michael? Cool. My number two is from Never Rarely, Sometimes, Always... Julia Holter, who um, is ordinarily a, just a musician in her own right, <laughs> realm of dream pop with some experimental and classical elements to her work. And this is a very kind of dreamy ambient score that just adds to the kind of, uh, it adds kind of an atmospheric element to an otherwise um, very grounded neorealistic procedural um, that is never rarely, sometimes always. Um and very pleasant to listen to on its own. And that's from Julia Holter. Never, rarely, sometimes, always. Now, before we switch, why don't we share? Because your number one and my number two are the same. Okay, perfect. And that is Tenet from Ludwig Göransson, longtime collaborator with who we might know as Childish Gambino or Donald Glover. Uh, what was it about the score that you loved? Oh, I mean, just listen. You don't even have to watch the movie. Just listening to the score on its own will In get fact, you riled up. you not to watch the movie. <laughs> yeah, the, just the score itself is 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 thrilling. I mean, I think there is a bit of bombast to it, but um, it's uh, it gets the blood pumping. That's what it's supposed to do, and it does it. <laughs> I, I agree. That's, that's a good assumption. Um, I, I guess just a, a little bit more uh, belabored speech here for me is. You never want to put the cart ahead of the horse, but Hans is getting up there in age. And I do think that it's possible that in Ludwig Gordonson we do have a, a successor to um, Hans Zimmer once he does move on from his career of incredible compositions that are memorable. Um, you know, John Williams is leaving the uh, 
I mean, he's broadly leaving. He's still doing a very small amount of projects. But we are kind of at this turning point where the uh, old school fellows that we always relied on, Ennio Morricone has passed. John Williams is getting out of the game. Hans Zimmer is getting up there. Who are these new voices that are going to be taking over that aren't, um, you know, more limited in scope? Um, you know, a lot of the folks that we've previously selected, they're great, but they only do one or two films a year. A Hans Zimmer would often do, you know, four to six. Um, and I, I see the same output from Ludwig where he's just capable of these uh, incredible scores and he's, you know, they're bangers and he's making three to four of them a year. It is a banger. I will second that. All right. What is, uh, or I guess it's me, Taylor. What is your own number Keep it one? going. <laughs> I will keep it going. My number one official soundtrack of the year is a composition made by Johan Johansson, who has now passed on. This is a uh, soundtrack he made for the film Last and First Men, his directorial debut. that have topped many people's lists in the past years. Uh, I won't belabor the point on Last and First Men as the soundscape is essentially the entirety of one-third of it, but uh, we will be talking about that more later. Very cool. It's almost surprising to me that he never did work with Nolan. It just seems like they are kind of simpatico in there. I think uh, they would have. Yeah. Unfortunately, we won't get to see that effort. All right, Michael, let's get on to our number four film of the year. All right, my number four is a hour-long experimental film called The Grand Bazaar. filmmaker Jody Mack. Uh, her primary uh, method here is stop motion animation. And this is kind of a, this is, this is part continent hopping travelogue meets um, uh, this experimental study of patterns and textiles. What she usually does is um, work with all kinds of things, whether it's fabrics, swatches, um, scarves. She finds these kind of, you know, intricately designed textiles of different varieties and uh, animates them through stop motion, sometimes filling the screen um, with, this, with the, the images of these textiles, or she's placing them within sort of a real world context, wherever that may be in the world. It could be in a room, it could be outside next to an ocean, it could be 
them laying over an edge. It's um, just a, a you know pure cinema, if you if you could call it that. Since this is a non-narrative work, it's about um, you know the visual study of of pattern and color and rhythm and tempo. Um, un- an incredibly catchy movie. This is just by far the most purely pleasurable thing that's on my list that I could just watch over and over and over again and not get tired of. Um, and it's streaming on Mubi, if I am not mistaken. At least it was. That is where I watched it. I think it's still on there. Um, and it's only 60 minutes of your time. It's just not that big of a commitment. So, worth checking out. The Grand Bazaar. I've heard great things, not just from you. All right. My number four film on the year is a film we've already talked about quite a bit. And that is Steven Soderbergh's HBO Max feature film, Let Them All Talk. I just don't know who you are anymore. Does anybody trust you? We really lost each other. How's work going? Ah, oh, I've hit a wall. Well, maybe you should Sam. take a breather. Sometimes the sources that a writer uses are very close to home. There is a lot of excitement. Is there anything you might be able to share with us? Not really, not at this point, no. Starring Meryl Streep, Diane Weist, Candace Bergen, Gemma Chan, and Lucas Hedges. This is a film that I watched and then did research about. Not a film that I knew more about going in. Um, So the first time I watched it, I had no idea of the anecdotes of the fact that almost everything was improvised. There's just a general thing that they have to get to. Um, I was struck by the gorgeous cinematography of certain aspects of the Queen Anne 2, Queen Anne the Second, SS Queen Anne the Second. I I don't know how to talk about boats. It's Um, one of the Queen Anne's. Yes. Um, Essentially, Meryl Streep um, has a reason why she cannot get on an airplane, and thus her agent, Gemma Chan, finagles a way to get her to England to accept an award bestowed on her by her peers, who are authors. It's an award that would mean a lot to Meryl's character, but uh, due to something that I will not disclose, she needs to not take a plane there. Um, Along the way, we see that she may be having a romantic affair with a fellow who's reading beside the pool. Um, It's a a very fun... uh, smirk and a nod, squint your eyes, throw a wink um, type of a a potential romance there that I won't get deeper into. Um, And this is just a film like your Grand Bazaar where, you know what I did the day after I watched this? What'd you do? I put it on again. Good choice. You know why? Because it's fun. And I put it on again the other day, watched half of it, and I'm going to watch the other half probably later this weekend. Because it's just a good, pleasant time. There's nothing like watching Diane Weist smile and explain what Starlink is doing to our atmosphere, making it so that no one will ever see the starry skies that she saw growing up. It's an incredible feat, I think, to make a film this kind of aloof and um, not really self-serious, but also sincere um it's got a bunch of talent it feels like it was shot over two weeks it was shot over two weeks feels like it was assembled easily it was assembled two days after he finished shooting it um this is just one of those movies where 
it's a personal favorite, and I think that it's something that might not top anyone else's list, but no one's going to watch this and feel bad, much like your selection at number nine on The Rocks. Yeah, this is another one that I think would have maybe been on more lists had it received a theatrical release. This ended up on HBO Max without a lot of fanfare, it seems like. Zero. Right? Um, All the fanfare went to Wonder Woman. Probably. I'd be curious to know how something like this performs on HBO Max versus something like The Midnight Sky, just because they have these capital A a list movie stars in them um, mm-hmm. that, you know, uh, any given casual moviegoer might click on just based on the Meryl Streep image alone. Um, and I think they would find it delightful. I concur. All right, Mike, let's get on to our best actor and actress, lead and supporting. All right, where are we starting? Where would you like to start? How about supporting actor? Let us start with supporting actor. You want to go first? Sure. I have as one of my favorite supporting actors of the year is Paul Racy from Sound of Metal. I don't think is coming up anywhere else on the show. If I don't. Not for me. Yeah, I think it's been very well received. I think I've seen this crop up on quite a few lists. This is. Uh, a, a film on Prime Video starring Riz Ahmed as the drummer uh, and former addict who very suddenly loses his hearing and uh, goes to a rehab uh, clinic to kind of come to terms or maybe not come to terms with uh, the loss of his hearing and kind of the, the new identity he needs to find for himself. But Paul Racy, the person I have in this supporting category slot, is the... Um, manager slash head of the rehab clinic he attends and um just the 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 truth of how deeply this guy seems to care about Riz Ahmed's character's um success and um his his hope that Riz Ahmed's character will find some kind of peace as he navigates this just you know unfathomable moment in his life just seems so true this guy doesn't have that much screen time but the moments he has where he's trying to explain you know what what exactly this is going to mean for Riz Ahmed is is really stunning I've never heard of this actor before um but I was quite taken by his uh supporting turn here Paul Racy good selection a selection that I think I've seen quite a few places all right. My supporting actor selection is something that you might not hear about anywhere else or ever again. And that is The Outsiders, Mark Menchaca. He plays a supporting role. Um, unfortunately, I can't get into the details of why this role from this actor who I'd never heard of was so arresting without giving quite a bit away. But as I mentioned earlier, this is a horror series that is a limited series based on Stephen King's book in which something assumes other people's shapes. Mm -hmm. And Mark Menchaca's delivery, performance, range, um, expression is truly, I I think, a sight that I I can't think of a better um, performance from a supporting actor this year. There's too much range here to ignore what he's capable of. I don't know that roles like this come up in projects very often. I don't know that we'll ever see a return to form like this again, but I do want to say and herald that what he did in this role, I think, is not only the achievement of a career, but I think it's the achievement of the year. Love it. More reason to see this one. 
And what is your supporting actress selection, Michael? My supporting actress pick is Anna Lee Ashford from mm-hmm. Corey Finley's Bad Education. Same person I had in this slot at the halfway point. I ended up putting some other people in here as I was making the list and then ultimately just circled back to her and I kind of ended up back where I started. She's one of the younger members of the uh, of the school administration in this film about an embezzlement scandal at a public school system. And I was rewatching just a couple of clips from this movie today to try to re- refresh my memory because, you know, this movie came out so long ago that's working against it. Um, I, I think she's a stunning performer. My favorite scene in this movie is probably when she is, she's kind of this rather meek or timid blonde member of the staff who's just barely working up the courage to try and blackmail Hugh Jackman's, uh, superintendent. And she's like just barely getting the words out of her mouth as she starts to blackmail him and she's immediately cut off. Um, I read that she's primarily a theater actress. She played, um, Elle Woods in like a Broadway, the Broadway rendition of, um, Legally Blonde. Um, so she's she's much, much more well-known in the theater world. It makes me kind of wonder if that's a theater connection, because I know Corey Finley, the director of this movie, came from the theater world as well. Exactly. Um, I'd love to see her do um, more film. I think she, I thought she was terrific in this. Um, so yeah, her name's Annalie Escher. All right. My selection for supporting actress is a woman we've already spoken about briefly during my number 10. That is Julia Stockler in her role of Invisible Life, playing one sister who leaves one earring on the stair and then hops on a boat with the man that she believes she's in love with, that she will spend the rest of her life with, and the film commences from there. She plays two characters in this film, and she plays them very well. She has an incredible range that she gets to go through in this film in which she plays a teenager and she plays a uh, woman who's tired of the bullshit, essentially, inherits a home. Um, The rails on which she goes about getting that home um, passed on to her are, I I think, just some of the the most interesting screenwriting um, for a female character that I've seen this year. What she gets to go through um, as far as post-birth symptoms um, and difficulties coping with her body while also trying to define herself while being festooned, alone, completely not able to contact her family, renounced of her name, her title, um, those relationships, um, and the range that she gets to show by playing two characters, not just one. Um, This is an actress that... uh, at the halfway point I had as my rising star, I would still have her as my rising star if I hadn't just watched The Undoing. Um, I think that we're going to see great things from Julia Stockler. And she was the pick at the halfway point of the year too, right? Mm-hmm. She held on to it. She did. All right. Let's get on to the lead actor for you, Michael. All right. My uh pick for lead actor of 2020 is Luca Marinelli in Martin Eden, which people are probably more familiar with Luca Marinelli from the old guard. He was a member of the main little group of superheroes. I guess they're called superheroes in the old guard. 
I don't know what you call that group of uh, I protagonists. I emptied um, my recycling bin after I watched that movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he had he had two you know fairly big films this year. Martin Eden was considerably better received than the old guard. Um, but yeah, as I already described, the movie is kind of this rise and fall story of intellectual ambition. The this the just the the truth in his passion, his passion for knowledge, his desperate desire to learn and become a published writer um, is so wholly believable um, and, and convincing. Um, he's he's a really, really fun actor to watch, and um, he blends into this time period that you really can't quite pin down in just a, a really wonderful way. Um, so yeah, I'm hoping that between these two movies he uh has more good things ahead question Mm -hmm. was franz rogowski your lead actor last year you know i think he lost it to paid uh i always want to say pedro almodovar but it was antonio banderas in the pedro almodovar that's right i'm I'm just sensing a pattern of timelessness Mm. films in which the actor can really take over very similar kind of uh role that's Mm -hmm. for sure all right, so my selection for lead actor is a fellow we've already talked about and a film we've already talked about a few times, and that is Louis Garel in Jacques or An Officer and a Spy from Roman Polanski, in which Louis Garel plays a man held wrongfully for treason on Devil's Island in um, the middle of the ocean on a small island with no way out of a prison cell, and even if there was no way to get home, sunburnt, bleeding, bruised, broken, but never willing to give up his innocence. Um, It is a a stirring performance that I think um, kind of conveys a future in which we haven't really begun to see what he's capable of. And if he gets more good projects, I expect that we'll be talking about him for decades to come. Very cool. And who is your lead actress, Mike? This is my last tie, I promise, of our show. This is a three-way tie, just because these are all three. So just for clarity, Michael said he will never have a tie again on this show. And this show is a different word than this episode. Hopefully it will not be held to that. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I have three actresses here that I just absolutely love. I could not pick between them. I do. I do have three. one is Daisy Ridley. It is or not, not Daisy Ridley. Daisy Sorry, Ridley. Daisy Edgar Jones. Who's Daisy, Daisy, Daisy Ridley? The Star Wars, right? Yeah, I yeah, want. Yeah. I want the normal people. Uh, I got. I have Carrie Coon from The Nest, which I've already talked about. I have Tally Medell from Fourteen, Dance Leads movie oh, Fourteen, so and Atsuko Maeda from To the Ends of the Earth from Kyoshi Kurosawa. I'm going to talk about maybe just one right now since I've already talked about The Nest, but I didn't really talk about Carrie Coon, and I'll save the other two, even though these are all three fantastic performances but yeah carrie coon in the nest is just a, just a delectable role as this wife who is just so so fed up with with her husband's bs and watching her become kind of unhinged um and watch and as her marriage falls apart is a shockingly fun thing to watch in a movie that's very much um covered in dread um yeah i, I think this is Far and away, my favorite performance from Carrie Coon. Um, and I've liked her in most everything I've ever seen her in. Um, but yeah, um, lots of good lead actresses this year. 
uh, small anecdote. Please watch The Leftovers, because if you think Carrie Coon is good mm. in The Nest, you haven't seen her best performance yet. That's your favorite? That is undeniably the best, because it's long story, long-form storytelling. She gets to go on bigger oh, yeah, but arcs. like, But pound for pound, would you still pick it? Oh, 100%. Okay, oh, 100%. okay. 100%. Yeah, she's she has some incredible turns in that limited series. For, <laughs> I guess it's a TV show, but it ends after three seasons. Um incredible arc there anyways my selection for lead actress and the only time that we're going to talk about this film today is graciela borges's the weasel's tale and it's a film from juan jose campanella who was famous for winning the oscar for the secret in their eyes um which was later remade into a very subpar film starring julia roberts in 2014 i believe But uh, essentially, this film shows a fading movie star who had once upon a time won an award. That award now is on a gigantic pedestal in the center foyer of the entryway of her home. Her entire life is built around it. It's at the foot of the stairs. It's at the head of the entryway. It's at the center of all the hallways. She has an award, if you haven't noticed. Um, she is aging, has ill health, perhaps a poor memory. Um, this is a comedy film. It's also a a little bit Poirot-ish. Um, I I think it's a a lot like Knives Out, except for I like this. Um, and, um, her role in it is very much a comedic and dramatic one, which is one of my favorite things when someone gets to really chew on both. Um, you know, these edged out all the, uh, gals, especially Meryl Streep and and let them all talk. This is really just, I think, um, a place where a great foreign film didn't get any entryway. It was originally released in, uh, South America in 2019, went all of 2020 without distribution until December 14th. It opened in like six virtual cinemas. It's, it's incredibly hard to find it. But if you can, it's a, it's a really fun uh, movie in which three men who are living with her are presented with a situation where that mansion that they live in is going to go bye-bye if they don't do something. And she's a faded movie star who has all the grace of, uh, I, I guess I would say, uh, Robin Williams and Flubber. But mm. also all the grace of a Cruella de Vil. It's It's a very fun role. And I can't recommend that film enough. I want to check this one out. This one sounds fun. All right, Michael. On to your number three film of the year. My number three is Kiyoshi Kurosawa's To the Ends of the Earth. Which I just mentioned in my uh, best actress category, Um, Atsuka Maeda plays this Japanese reality television show host um, who is on location in Uzbekistan. She's the host of this um, travel show, and she's with an small, all-male crew growing around to different kind of uh, culturally significant sites in Uzbekistan and 
um, we see her both kind of in front of the camera and offset. And on screen, she plays this very peppy, bubbly reality TV show host persona. And behind the scenes, she's this very kind of anxious, um, fretful woman kind of navigating this very foreign landscape. Um, so it's this kind of um, highly idiosyncratic drama with some comedy mixed in about uh, this woman solitarily exploring this unknown country. And it is just a fascinating um, movie formally in how it kind of goes through these cycles of tension and release and tension and release. And you're never quite sure if this movie is going to um, explode in a way that the wind up intention sort of leads you to think one of the great comparisons um, I've, I've, I've heard is um, comparing it to uncut gems, which is another movie that has these kind of red herrings where you keep kind of thinking something terrible is going to happen. And it doesn't quite happen yet. Um, but it's covering completely different thematic territory. It's about this woman kind of finding some self-confidence and finding what it is that she really wants to do, which is not be a, TV show host it is to sing um, and the actress Etsuko Maeda is actually a former um, pop Japanese like pop star um, yeah un, un, formally unlike anything else I've, I've seen in, in a while in terms of its um, um, using of tension and release in, in different kinds of, kinds of cycles um, so yeah it is in virtual cinemas now to the ends of the earth I'm very excited to catch up with it when I have a moment. Uh, I do have one follow-up question, though. This mm. is this is just for clarity. Do they thoroughly cook the food? They do not. <laughs> At one point, she is... Yeah, that's a good that's example. That's the only anecdote I'm aware of. Yep, she's you know asked at one point to eat a plate of local cuisine, for example. It's an undercooked plate of food, but she has that bubbly, peppy persona on no matter what, even though we know she is not enjoying the food. An even better example is where she is asked to go on this amusement park ride, which just looks like it hasn't been you know, repaired or attended to in years. And there's nothing more to this ride than it just like whipping you around in circles, like a torture device. Like it just looks awful. And she's asked to go on it three times to get this right, to get this shot right. And each time she just looks like utterly, utterly miserable. And the tension in this scene, you're just watching her get on this stupid little ride three times. And it, you just somehow expect like this ride is going to somehow fall apart and send her flying. And I, I guess I won't say anything, but um, about, about, about what happens, but these little moments that are just loaded with tension and the way that tension is somehow tapping into her deeply seated anxiety is really fascinating. Um, Long answer to your question. I, I have one follow-up question. Where does this film take place? Uzbekistan. Okay. There you go. Uh, what is your number three? My number three is a cheat. Once again, it is not a film. It is a limited series on Hulu. I believe it came out in March or February. It is the world-renowned now, much-heralded, normal people. Are you dating anyone problematic at the moment? I haven't had a midnight call from you in a while. So corrupt and sexy. 
Would you say your feelings are involved? Obviously. Who is it obvious to? Directed by Lenny Abrahamson and Hetty McDonald, starring Daisy Edgar Jones and is it Paul Pascal? Mescal, I think. Uh, both first, or I guess Daisy had had a, a one small project previously, but I believe it's Paul's first project. Um, this is a film adaptation of the uh, the novel Normal People, and. It's something that I just turned on. I think it was a, a lazy Sunday afternoon, and I was sucked into that world so completely that I stayed until it was over. And there's very few projects that do that. There's also very few projects, I think, that have the range to a character and performer um, that this does. And it doesn't just do that with one performer or one character. It does it with two. And it also does it with the town, with the city, with the idea of time. Um, I think that episode one is something that might get criticized fairly for having a hard time with believing that these are teenagers. But once we get Mm. to them being um, not high school teenagers, but really college age teenagers and and so on, I, I think that it's pretty much undeniable. This is one of my few fives of the year. And I think that everyone should watch it. It's available on Hulu. I don't really want to get deeper into the plot or anything like that because I think it's best to let this happen to you. Just know that these character arcs are, I think, some of the sharpest and most well-orchestrated of the year. And there are some rumors about a follow-up possibly occurring at some point, right? In real time? Yes. So Mm -hmm. there wouldn't be a follow-up until they're actually age 40. Ah, I see, I see. Um, And that's just a preliminary discussion that was um, really, really, really highly reported because they were asked that in a QA. and a So Mm. there's no actual veracity to it. It's just they asked the question and then um, I think the uh, the writer, Sally something, I I forget her name, um, answered with, if they did do it, it would be a natural evolution. It wouldn't be a subsequent thing. It would be they'd be catching up with each other after all these years. Got it. Because, yeah, you said based on a book. I don't know how far the book goes. As far as, I believe as far as this show does. Okay, got it, got it. And then it it ends as it ends. Um, And I won't uh, spoil that. So let's move on before we get into spoilers, just because I keep wanting to talk about it more, to our top three directorial debuts of 2020. Let's start with your number three okay my number three uh debut film of the year is swallow do i make you happy i'm the happiest man in the whole world i feel so lucky you're not mad at me mom we're pregnant about what I just want to make sure I'm not doing anything wrong. You couldn't do anything wrong, even if you tried. So what did you do for money before you met my son? From director Carlo Mirabella Davis, starring... So good. 
great movie starring Haley Bennett. She plays a housewife to a uh, very douchey dude. There's no other way to put it. I'll just that's, say that's it that way. That's the most eloquently described I've heard this film all year. We're getting deep into the show. That's how we, we're going to describe things at this point. Um, yeah, she, she sp- she's a housewife who spends the vast majority of her time um, at home alone. She has this kind of vaguely 50s feel about her, p- particularly because of the costume design. And she develops this kind of compulsion for swallowing different household items, be them like tacks or marbles, any little knickknacks she can seem to get her hands on. Um so, as you would probably think, we're in met- we're very much in metaphor territory here. Although I think this actually is a real medical condition—the compulsion to swallow stuff, mm-hmm. but just real objects. It's a compulsive control addiction. Yeah, yeah. Um, but a really sleekly directed film with really thoughtful um, production design and lighting too. The way this seems to be sort of like calling back to different time periods where some of these. Um, expectations about about housewives' roles, you know, were, were maybe sort of born. I, I love the, how it kind of nods its head to, to the eras in which um, the the norms that Haley Bennett's character is kind of trying to uh, appease. Um, it's it's just really inter- interesting thematic uh, stuff this movie is doing, um, and uh, it's amply available now i'm not sure if it's streaming but definitely available for rental since i don't get to talk about this today i'm just gonna uh, hop on your back and just pound some stuff down first i think that what makes it most 50s feeling is the choice of a modernist house aesthetic mm-hmm. not only is the house decorated very like uh modernistically as if it were the actual evolved version of the 50s but we're, we're constantly seeing these shots of Haley bennett in the bathroom the bedroom the kitchen, the living room, the kitchen, another room, the kitchen, another room, the kitchen, another room, the kitchen, another room. And she's always forced to wear a dress whenever anyone else is around, uh, heels. There's just this repetition and this this forcedness um, and the, the look in her eyes of not being happy um, mm-hmm. that really just sell this movie. I wish it, I had room for it, but... This is one of the best years for directorial debuts mm-hmm. that I've ever been a part of. So unfortunately, Swallow is my number four. Just oh, inside my so list. close. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you have at number three? My number three is a film that I wish we were giving more credence to today. I don't think you've had a chance to catch up with it yet. That is Florian Zeller, a playwright who I believe is in his 40s now and his directorial debut, The Father. Don't worry. Everything will sort itself out. Saw it in his eyes, didn't know who I was. It was like I was a stranger to him. Just did something to me. I don't know what she's cooking up against me, but she's cooking something up. What are you talking about, Dad? I'm not leaving my flat! I am not leaving my flat! This really is my flat. Isn't it? Starring Anthony Hopkins. Uh, I expect we'll see... In the Oscars, a selection of Anthony Hopkins for Best Performer here. Um, This is a man uh, with dementia. It's kind of like dementia might be a theme of 2020. Um, And how he is experiencing and living with that. And I don't really want to get into too much of the details, but I'll tell you this is kind of like a Corey Finley debut for me Mm -hmm. in which I'm seeing this 
massive uber talent playwright really understand his screenplay and how to best capture that from the camera angles to how he's presenting characters and what he's not including being just as important as what he's including. Um, and it, what comes to pass is one of the most, I think, memorable and sincere uh, feature film fiction projects about dementia, where it's not reductive or about horror or, um, you know, just sim making something more simplistic than it is. It's just letting it be the human thing that it is and capturing great performances. Also notably is Olivia Coleman, who everybody remembers from The Favorite. Yeah, coming out in like a couple weeks in some fashion or another, right? Mm -hmm. Getting I believe so. lots of Oscar buzz. All right, Michael. What is your number two directorial debut of the year? My number two is called Residue. Señor, uh, the director's name is Marawi Garima, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. This is streaming now on Netflix. Got tipped off to this film after it was a New York Times critic. The critics pick, I think, by Glenn Kenny. Um, it is about a filmmaker who is um, returning to his childhood neighborhood in Washington, D.C. after having moved away from home and gone to L.A. And he kind of comes back to see that his neighborhood has been um, transformed because of gentrification. His childhood friends, who we thought would still be there, have all kind of scattered. Some are in prison. Some have um, gone elsewhere. And, you know, there have been a good handful plus movies in the last couple of years, I think, about gentrification. You think about movies like um, Blind Spotting or um, Last Black Man, Last Black Man in San Francisco. And one thing I really like about this one is that because it is about a filmmaker, it's a it's partly about sort of um, it's, it's very much about how an artist actually can capture this kind of process on screen and the kind of the the difficulties in finding the right distance to take from your subjects as you um, want to understand but you don't want to condescend you have to try to make sense of a place that you are now kind of an outsider from as soon as you turn on a camera and are trying to study the place I think that's a really fascinating angle that this is um, taking um, and it partly just really well captures how disorienting it is to watch a place that you are so intimately familiar with become something totally else and I think my problem with some of these other movies about um, gentrification and transforming neighborhoods is that some they, they tend to use sometimes they're using humor in a way that feels too on the nose I'm thinking about something in blind spotting like the, the green in the tea. garage Oh, I forgot about that one, actually. But there is the green tea joke. Um, there is just something that's a little too easy to make fun of when it comes to gentrification. And I like just how somber this one is. I, I think this handles it in a little bit more of an oblique way where you're sometimes hearing, you know, a, a clearly a new white resident in the neighborhood talking, but we don't even see him. They're kept off screen mm -hmm. and it really foregrounds um, the experience of the original residents in that way. Um and you'll 
see a scene twice, once from the perspective of um, this main character who is being chased by the police. Then we see it again and we're hearing it through the um, voice of a white person who's off screen. Just really interesting filmmaking choices. Um, And it's on Netflix. Just got buried. It's called Residue. That is one that I still need to see and now feel like I have to see. I do have to ask, is this a film that Jonathan Majors would approve of right after he says you can't hate something if you don't love it first? I think he would approve. I think it passes that test. Good. Good. I'm very happy. It's a good sniff test. It is. All right. My number two directorial debut of the year is a film we will be talking about later and a film we've already talked about a little bit. That is My Mexican Bretzel. Unfortunately, it is not available for anyone to watch anywhere, and I don't have any news on when it might be available for anyone to watch anywhere. It is directed by Nuria Jimenez Lorang. It is an assembly of footage with fiction, dialogue that you read as subtitles. Um, there are also diary entries um, about what someone's going through and um, recounts from one particular person of conversations. So sometimes it feels like there's dialogue on screen and then you have to remember that you're only seeing one side of a conversation and one person's interpretation of it. Um, I think we'll get a little bit more into this one later as we still have not gotten to it in its finality. What is your number one directorial debut of the year, Michael? My number one is... House of Hummingbird, which I already talked about since that was my number six it's by the South Korean film by Kim Bora. Um, I won't add too much more. We've already discussed it. So we'll keep on moving. All right. Well, in the spirit of keeping on moving, I will briefly say that my favorite directorial debut of the year is a film we will be talking about later. And perhaps I'll just leave it at that for now. So much anticipation. What is your number two feature film of the year, Michael? My number two is Dan Salit's small budget drama, 14. I mean, obviously she's pretty. She seems like trouble. She is trouble. She's definitely trouble, but guys usually like her. What kind of music does it play? Some kind of jazz? I don't know, I haven't heard him. Seriously, you've never, like, you haven't seen him practice or anything? I know you're sorry. You're always sorry. Oh, let me apologize. Joe, what does it matter? It's always the same. Some shit happened to you, and then the people standing Stop. near you get shit all over Stop. them. You can it. hear the crowd go, woo! The streamers are coming down from the ceiling. Everyone's clapping. What a great choice. Glad you enjoyed it My as number well. 11. Ah, oh, so close. Uh, this is about two women in their 20s or so living in New York City, Um, They have been friends since childhood, and one of them is much more stable, both kind of emotionally and professionally. The other one, not so much. She is a more um, unreliable uh, type of of person, and it's it's clearly rooted in some um, emotional um, troubles that um, have long afflicted their relationship and this movie kind of follows the push and pull of their relationship as um one friend becomes um increasingly kind of strained by the unreliabilities of the other friend um 
very small budget drama. Um, Dan Sleet um, has talked lots about his um, how influenced he's been by Eric Romare and also um, the French filmmaker Maurice uh, Piala. And one thing Piala is really well known for is having often shot these really unsentimental raw dramas where he'd finish shooting the film and then if he identified scenes that just didn't work, he would simply just take them out and see if the film still functioned in in any way kind of continuity-wise. And they I would... Like that. Yeah, and it would result in these just gaps that kind of turned out to be more even more productive than the actual scenes might have been. And that's a really... That's kind of the main formal gambit in 14 are these gaps in time that um, are very much a part of the movie that we will sometimes just with a simple cut, we'll jump through the years and we see one character's hair has changed dramatically. And that's our cue that time has passed. And we're always kind of getting these little hints of what's transpired um, in those intervening years. One of my favorite examples is um, one of one of the friends asking, oh, this isn't the supportive girlfriend issue again, is it? And it's just a clue that they've had these conversations repeatedly over the years about, um, you know, trying to be there for each other, trying to support each other through hard times. Um, I think it ends on a very, very tragic note, but I think it's a really formally kind of audacious movie for, especially for how kind of low budget it is. Um, yeah, it's called 14 and it's, uh, still in virtual cinemas, I believe. If we had the ability or the category for our top three screenplays, this would certainly be in my top three. Mm. Love it. What's all your number right. two? My number two is a film that we've not discussed at all. It is Nuria Jimenez Loring's My Mexican Bretzel. <laughs> uh, what can I say that I haven't said already without spoiling the piece? Not too much. Why don't I just ask you, as someone who also loves this film but didn't put it in their list because it's not in wide distribution, why do you mm. love this film? Why don't you oh, speak for me? God, I'm put on the spot. Um, well, it is a gorgeous movie, as you said. It's it's entirely constructed out of found footage. And, um, it, yeah, it is just kind of dazzling in, in its color you know we're following this couple a husband wife um couple throughout the course of this movie and they're clearly kind of like upper middle class if not just plain wealthy so they're visiting all these like um fantastic you know sites around the world as we follow them on their journey as a couple um so yeah it is, it is just a visually stunning movie to, to um, imagine the director jimenez right Jimenez Lorang having sort of unearthed this found footage in such kind of incredible condition that just in itself is is so kind of thrilling that you can make a movie out of something that you just found in the boxes. With uh, just some journal entries, right? Some real mm-hmm. journal entries. Yeah, you know, with the way you describe this as not being available anywhere, and you're telling me there's fact and fiction involved, people are going to wonder, like, are you playing me? Does this movie not really exist? Yes. Uh, unfortunately, it does exist and you're not able to see it. Um, it'd be easier if it didn't exist because then you would be suffering. <laughs> True. <laughs> All right. Let's get on to our favorite classic discoveries of the year, Michael. Why don't you kick us off with your number three discovery? All right. I don't know about you, but I think this is probably the hardest category for me to pick. Like, I think really? This is, this is my yeah. favorite category. Oh, I mean, I love this category, but I think there are probably 
50 other movies I just as easily could have slotted in here. No, I did not have that productive of a film watching year. Like, there's a lot of movies that I saw that I loved this year, but that true 98 to 100, that truly perfect film, Mm. um, there, there's only one of in 2020 for me, and it's mm. it's not even out yet, and we haven't talked about it. Mm. And the the other five, um, they're just, you know, I, out of all the movies I watched that year, there's only five that I feel are in that 98 to 100 range. Yeah, um, yeah I, I might be a harder critic, or I might just know exactly what I love more, and maybe you're mm. more uh, enjoying the the cinematic medium of the lens, whereas I, I just want to be taken away. Mm. Well, I, I took more of a curatorial approach and just picked three very different ones because there were, it was just too difficult to pick three older films that I absolutely love this year. But my number three is meshes of the afternoon, just from 1943 directed by uh, Maya Duran and Alexander Hamid husband wife duo it's an experimental short i think it's only 15 to 20 minutes long maybe just under 15 minutes 14 to 20 minutes or so shot in black and white it has this kind of circular surreal narrative where you're watching darren who plays uh who, who performs in the movie she's um a very surreal short where it just is silly to kind of describe it she's a woman outside of her house she sees some kind of strange figure she walks into her house and falls asleep we kind of enter her dream we kind of start to fall into this kind of surreal dream loop um that is just shocking to me that it is from 1943 it feels so so ahead of its time in its um uh just kind of innovation i guess um dazzling short um meshes of the afternoon What's your number and three? And where can people watch mm. that? Uh, I think I watched it on Criterion, if I remember correctly. I think okay. it's there. So if it's not on Criterion Channel still, potentially Canopy, or you could probably purchase the short from the Criterion Collection. Might even be on YouTube in some oh, fashion sure. or another. Yeah. All right. My number three is Robert Altman's feature film from 1999, Cookie's Fortune. Welcome to Holly Springs, Mississippi. Ah, nice out here today, isn't it? A quiet little town. Cookie, I thought I might make some catfish antelopes. No! Where nothing ever happens. Jumai! Jumai! But when the town's nuttiest woman gets whacked... There's blood everywhere, red, like the coral that the fishers have found. Hold on just a minute. Discovering who done it. What's going on? They broke in the door and they got one of the guns. She was shot. ...is going to be murder. Watch, what? You back up, back out. ...from acclaimed filmmaker Robert Altman. I cleaned every one of them guns, so my prints must have been on all of them. Written by Anne Rapp, starring Glenn Close, Julianne Moore, Liv Tyler... Chris O'Donnell, isn't that a name that'll set you back? Charles S. Dutton, Patricia Neal, Ned Betty, Courtney B. Vance. So many different folks in here. Um, This is one of those movies that was on Netflix, and I just said, Robert Altman, I haven't seen enough from him. I love Liv Tyler. Of course I'm going to watch this movie. And I turned it on, and by the time it was over, it was one of my favorite films that I'd seen in the whole first half of the year. Um, It's only aged gracefully for me. I'll I'll give you a brief description of the film as the synopsis is defined on IMDb. 
conflict arises in the small town of Holly Springs, when an old woman's death causes a variety of reactions among family and friends. I think that the title of the film gives away that there is a fortune. And um, like any good whodunit, who exactly is going to end up with the fortune is something that will keep you guessing until the end. It's the small moments of um, sitting in nature, having a conversation while fishing as a group, being put in prison and playing checkers with the guard. Um, It's just these small town moments where everybody knows each other. And it's also got that fun whodunit quality that I, I just really love it. It, it's that rustic Americana that gets me every single time when I watch these um, films that are from this period of the nineties, they're kind of timeless, but they're very um, specific. And it's just one of those really pleasant experiences, like perhaps listening to your favorite album on a sunny day by a pond. Mm. And it's just something you take with you and you find valuable. um, And that's what cookies fortune is to me. I love the name of this movie. I want to know, like, who is this cookie and what is this fortune he has? What a good name. Cookie's fortune. It, it's a delightful name, and I won't elaborate more than that because then I would be spoiling some aspects of the film. I think it's better to go in blind. What is your number two favorite discovery of the year? My number two is Leave Her to Heaven. What shall be done with a jealous woman? Shocked, aren't you? If you were having the baby, you'd love it. Well, I never wanted it. Richard and I never needed anything else. Now this. How can you say such wicked things? Sometimes the truth is wicked. From 1945, this is directed by John Stahl. It stars Cornell Wilde and Gene Tierney. It's kind of a mix of noir and melodrama. I love noir in color which you don't see that often but this is shot in technicolor the color looks fantastic part of the reason it's on here is um this was put out by criterion this year and just the the new um edition of it this this latest version is just glorious in its color it looks fantastic and it's about uh gene tierney's character who is a socialite if i remember correctly who winds up in a relationship with cornell wilde's character and she turns out to be sort of diabolically possessive as a um romantic partner culminating in um murder and all kinds of um awfulness uh that she gets involved in to keep her man all to herself um gene tierney is just amazing in this diabolical role um it's a lot of fun leave her to heaven and where can we watch that that is um oh i watched it on blu-ray so i would think having just gotten the criterion blu-ray release it'll probably be on the channel at some point in the future great all right my number two favorite discovery of the year is a film that it's about time i caught up with and that is francis ford coppola's the conversation. What about me? He can bug anybody, anytime, anywhere. Nobody knows how you did it, though, Harry. Caused a hell of a scandal, too. Did you see him? The man with the hearing aid, like Charles. He's been following us all They're not people to him. Just voices. Three people were murdered, that's all. He doesn't know them, and they don't know him. Uh, it had nothing to do with me. I mean, I just turned in the tapes. 
Bless me, Father, for I've sinned. I've been involved in some work that I think I think will be used to stand it. hurt these two young people. Starring Gene Hackman with supporting role by John Cazale, who we recently talked about in Dog Day Afternoon. This is a film in which uh, quite a few things happen, but I don't really want to give it away, so I'll just read the synopsis since that gives away the least. Surveillance expert Harry Call is hired by a mysterious client's brusque aide to tail a young couple. Tracking the pair through San Francisco's Union Square, Call and his associate Stan manage to record a cryptic conversation between them. Tormented by memories of a previous case that ended badly, Call becomes obsessed with the resulting tape, trying to determine if the couple are in danger. This is a mm. film that influenced one of my favorite films of a couple years ago in Blowout from Brian De Palma and has one of the most beautiful uh, introductory sequences of film that I can think of. I can't recommend this one enough. And if you have a Roku, it is currently free to watch on the Roku channel. Good movie. Great movie. What is your number one film of classic discovery this year, Michael. I'm going with the time to live and the time to die. From Ho Shao Shen, this was uh, out in 1985. It's kind of a quintessential uh, Taiwanese new wave film. Um, sort of um, hits all the things that you kind of associate with that movement formally. These um, long shots and long takes. It's largely about Ho Shao Shen's um, own um, uh, coming of age in Taiwan. It's kind of about him, his family, the relationship to mainland China. Um, just an unbearably moving family drama. Um, I had Yi as my number one Ooh. pick at the halfway point. Just as easily could have kept that here. Just changing it up, covering really similar territory, similar in style. Whereas that one's set more in Taipei. This one's set in rural Taiwan. Um, just deeply, deeply moving family family drama and a coming-of-age story. Um, the time to live and the time to die. I What's need your? to catch up with both ye and that film. Where can folks watch that film? I believe it's still on the Criterion channel. Fantastic. My number one classic discovery of the year is a film that I watched in the last 25 days. Just under the wire. Just under the wire. And that is John Cassavetti's 1976 print of the film that is 108 minutes long. The Killing of a Chinese Bookie. So we got it. He choreographs it. He stages it. He does uh, the work. Don't exaggerate. I do the best I can. Hey, how's I owe you money. I'll pay you. Just give up. This guy owes us money. He's going to pay. Starring Ben Gazzara, with supporting roles from tons of folks that no one's heard of. 
I will go ahead and read the synopsis since that will do more honor to it than I ever could. Cosmo Vitelli, the proprietor of a sleazy, low-rent Hollywood cabaret, has a real affection for the women who strip in his peep shows and the staff who keep up his dingy establishment. He also has a major gambling problem that has gotten him in trouble before. When Cosmo loses big time at an underground casino run by mobster Mort, he isn't able to pay up. Mort then offers Cosmo the chance to pay back his debt by knocking off a pesky, mafia-protected bookie. What proceeds is something like a road film, in which, as the film synopsis describes, he has to leave the club and kill the bookie. It's almost like the title is accurate here. The killing of a Chinese bookie is, in fact, about the killing of a Chinese bookie. I think I get it. It's about going to kill the bookie, and that is the film. I can't stress enough how beautiful the cinematography is here. The shadows, the smoke, the um, the feel, the, the grimy, the gritty tone. This is... Very much like uh, 1960s, 1970s Sorsese, where you can feel the griminess of New York. You can feel L.A. here. Um, the people are feel like real people. I just, I swooned for this movie in a way that I never expected. I just popped it on HBO Max. Unfortunately, it's no longer there. Um, there's currently prints circulating on Canopy, Tubi, and Amazon. Um for rent or buy on Amazon. Tubi is free with commercials, canopies, obviously free through your library. Um, I can, I, I just want to stress there's two prints of this film, 1976, 1978, two different versions, two different lengths. The one that I saw and loved is 108 minutes. It's the original 1976 print. I do think that you should probably start with the original print. And then if you like it, go on to the other one. Um, but I, love this movie and I hope that everyone has a chance to see it. This is my first exposure to John Cassavetes and mm. I am thrilled that I have so many more movies to go. This is a Cassavetes I haven't seen, but we'll definitely have to talk about him at some point on the show. Uh, you can take that to the bank. All right, Michael, the question you've been waiting for for years, what is your favorite film? Of the year 2020. For years, as you say. Way back in 2015, I was planning for 2020. I knew it. You knew it. My favorite film is Vitalina Varela. I think I had in the number one spot at the halfway point. It has stayed right there. Uh, this is by the Portuguese filmmaker Pedro Costa. Not a household name by any means, but um, quite lauded, I think, among uh, critics. Um, Pedro Costa's last film was called 
Horse Money, and this is sort of a companion piece to that film in a way. Um, this uh, film, Vitalina Varela, is based on the um, real-life experiences of its lead actress, whose name is Vitalina Varela, who um, met, her, met and married her husband in Cape Verde. He um, left um, to travel to Portugal with the expectation that at some point she would follow Um they spent nearly two decades or so apart until she eventually heard he was ill, traveled to Portugal, and arrived just a couple days after he had already passed away. This was very much in the vein of slow cinema. It's a very slow film. It's a very, very dark film, um, quite literally in its color and light. Um, uh, to me, it's very much... Painterly. Very painterly. It's in the kind of a style of an old master's painting in a way, in partly because the movie is so still. I don't know if there's any part of this movie where the camera is moving and the, the characters as Vitalina's in her husband's home, which is in this kind of shanty town on the outskirts of Lisbon, getting familiar with residents, kind of just in grief. Um, the camera very rarely moves. The characters don't move. It kind of just feels like a work of portraiture in a way. Um, I think it's just a kind of a mode of cinema that I just don't see anybody else today really w- working in. Um, I just think it is a, just a breathtakingly beautiful, um, film in its co- composition and light and, and cinematography. Um, and just a deeply kind of ethical and respectful movie in depicting this woman's experience. This is set entirely in a impoverished um, kind of shanty town and I think there's just this matching of ethics and aesthetics that is really um, kind of unparalleled for me and um, whereas Koss's last film Horse Money had this really kind of um, puzzling chronology to it which usually earned it the description of kind of cinematic cubism this is a really more straightforward um, narratively kind of film um, I think it makes them really just two, two interesting films to put together for their differences and similarities. Um, but for someone with the, the patience for it, I think it's a masterpiece. It's Vitalina Varela from Pedro Costa. It's a beautiful film, and I just want to cap off. It is a masterpiece. It's an exhaustive masterpiece. Watching mm. it, at least for me, I was winded mm. by attempting to pay attention and constantly feeling like, I'm missing something. Um, mm. But it is one of the absolute leaders for take this to Kinko's and get a printed copy because this looks beautiful. Word. Back right. to you. What is your number one movie of 2020? My number one movie is once again an undistributed film. It's a posthumous release from Johan Johansson. Imagine this, Michael. Two billion years ahead of us, a future race of humans find itself on the verge of extinction. Almost all that is left in the world are alone in surreal monuments, beaming their message into the wilderness. This is Last and First Men, narrated by Tilda Swinton, adapted from the book of the same title written by Olaf Stapledon. This is a science fiction piece, as the synopsis indicated there, about a future version of humanity and their 
contact to us. I don't want to get too deep into that plot line, as I think that it's best experienced uh, laying on your back, watching the beautiful images that Johan has assembled. Um, some of the editing did happen with uh, another fellow who I'm forgetting the name of, who's a longtime collaborator with Johan. He also put the finishing touches on the score, made sure that the project came out with, with Johan's vision in mind. He'd been with him the whole time, so it, I think it's a very holistic piece. Feels of Johan, he just didn't get to uh, put the period at the end of the sentence um, as he died during production um, after everything was shot and it just needed to be assembled um, as well as the score being mostly finished. Um, this is a concert film. This is a documentary. This is a science fiction piece. This is a uh, visual album. This is so many different things, but at the end of the day, it is a film, and it is my favorite film of the year 2020. It is one of two that would have made my list in the year 2019. Uh, I think we already talked about how 2020 um, was a bit of a letdown, you know, uh, to put it lightly, not mm -hmm. just for film, but for plenty of other <laughs> reasons, but definitely Word. for film. In, in this case, uh, Last and First Men from Johan Johansson. It's his directorial debut. It's his final film. It's his final score. It is beautiful. Tilda Swinton could not be a better person to be an alien version of us in the future, separated by years of light, telling us about ourselves and what is occurring or has occurred. Uh, once this is released, I highly recommend getting the best sound system you can, the biggest screen you can, getting some pillows on the floor, and enjoying the 72-minute ride of narration. You used the phrase concert film at one point, and I wish I had bookmarked a review I skimmed or read at one point where the critic who loved it was talking about just like the, the most appropriate venue for this kind of film, and he said that while it'll, you know, if it gets distribution, will probably be it will probably be art houses, not, uh, you know, your AMCs or chains or whatever, but he really felt like it was even better suited for like a concert hall or, or something Royal like that. Hall, I think would be the correct place in Seattle. That sounds right too. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 100%. This is, uh, I, I think that you could take this and play the score live, um, and just mm -hmm. accompany the, um, images and then have the narration played separately on a separate track from Tilda Swinton if she didn't want to show up and do it herself, which mm -hmm. I, I almost think that she might because of the nature of this project, it, you know, um, this is just one of those unique fingerprints in the sand that, you know, once it's washed away, it's washed away. It's never going to be the same again. Um, this is one of the greatest composers of our era. He's gone now. This is one of the most um, insightful, reflective pieces of science fiction adapted in a very unique way. These are landscape shots of sculptures. Um, I, I just can't stress enough how beautiful this film is and how... Uh, important, I think it would be for everyone who likes storytelling and unconventional narratives and the beautiful, or the beauty to be found in static images um, or static objects, along with a, a score from one of the, the true greats of your period of time. One I still need to see. <laughs> and that is the year 2020. <laughs> 
have to go. I'm coming with you. That was brilliant. You're the best and we love you! That's another year in the can.